What I find most interesting about this film is that it was already set up and they were doing the preliminary work in between season four and season five. Now, that's kind of relevant because even if somehow the show had stopped and there was no season five, that's a huge amount of continuity. Well, there are references and cameos throughout. They certainly seem to throw out a lot of character development, which can be rather aggravating. And Megan McCarthy actually worked on this, and as of recording this, which is season four, is where we're at in that one, she has a lot of reds and a lot of yellows and a lot of oranges and one green to her name. So a pretty good track record. I have to admit, though, I'm not actually all that impressed here. They did bring in Toon Boom, Anima Toon Boom Animation's Harmony develop uh, software kit in order to make this one. Which, if you've seen uh, Princess and the Frog, or the Spongebob Squarepants movie, or the Simpsons movie, you've actually seen this before. It's a pseudo-CGI thing they do. I say pseudo-CGI. It's, it's actually a pseudo-2D thing they do with CGI. There we go. That's a better way to put that. Uh, lots of Twilight symbolism all, the, all over the place. Of course, because it's a, you know, it's a film all about her for some reason. Um, so let's just run through this really quick. I actually don't have much to say on this one. Uh, we have Canterlot, a bunch of ponies in motion. I noticed Lyra. And then I had to stop paying attention to every single cameo, because they're basically all there. If you name a character from the show, at least up to season four, they are probably present. Although, Glimmer was there too, twice. No no dialogue. Which, of course, makes sense, because most of that stuff can be done after the fact. Adding in a cameo doesn't take much. Adding in a pony in the, in the, the background for any animated work in general is not something that's going to be super hard to go back and do, as long as you haven't hit the final render part. So doing that makes perfect sense when it's a character that hadn't been invented yet when the script was being designed. This is, however, an indicator of, the, of that time uh, in terms of development and how much it doesn't acknowledge the show, which I do think it actually legitimately hurts the movie. Yeah. Speaking of which, the princesses all say no to Twilight's big design in order to gussy up the thing because, well, don't worry. You have the all the magic you need. Friends! Right, yes, that's why I'm asking you, my friends, to help me with this thing. Now, I get it. That's an old, that's it's intended to be a motif of the whole thing, that you don't need super-powered artifacts or whatever, that just people will help you to get together. But honestly, first of all, I think that's dumb. I think the way that they portray that particular arc in this movie is actually the worst part of the movie by far. And B, it completely dismisses the idea of the fact that it actually is ignoring its own point. Her connections with friends are exactly why those artifacts of power were then used for her benefit. That's kind of how that works. So the idea of them saying no just because, oh, you don't worry, you'll have friends, is actually contrary to its own statement. <sighs> Moving on. There. So, uh... What the heck? Anybody else get the vibe that this was designed to get people introduced to the franchise? For those of you not aware, in terms of timeline, this is actually set after Season 7, and if I have done my math correct, that's about where we'll be at in the streaminations when this goes live. Obviously, that's literally over a year from now, so I'm kind of you know, eyeballing that a little bit, but I just point that out because Season 7 of 9 is when they're trying to introduce new people to the franchise. I mean, I guess a shot in the arm is always a thing, and that's an idea, but once again, I feel like the need to introduce the characters and the concepts help kind of hurts the film. 
I, I don't know. I got nothing. In total contrast to another film we'll be looking at later this year, the Transformers film, which actually does a better job of exposition and overall, you know, getting people up to speed with things, this film feels like it kind of doesn't handle that all that well. Although it is a good showcasing of their archetypes, all of the main six are basically caricatures in this one, with very little actual characterization. I suppose that's the point. This is a Twilight episode, and let's call that what it is, because this is an episode, or actually it's closer to four episodes, but let's not get into that. So it, it, it makes a degree of sense that they wanted to focus on Twilight. So, okay, I'm not going to complain about that too much, but I am going to snark, because, because I'm not that impressed with this one. I was walking into this expecting to really like it, by the way, because I like the show. So, yeah, a little disappointing. Anyways. Uh, so we have the introduction. Uh, there's a rarity crush. Got to get a rarity crush counter going. We also have da uh, Rainbow Dash taking the cider. That actually got me a little bit. Uh, lots and lots of cameos. Uh, several characters who don't even speak. Yada, yada, yada. And then, hey, the bad guys show up. The smog airships. Uh, we have the Transformers special effects because Hasbro. You know, the, you know, you know the sound. And they all just look and stare, including three of the princesses who are all super powerful. And then Tempest shows up. Allow me to say that I think Tempest is one of the better aspects of the film. Uh, because among other things, she actually has characterization. And a little bit of a character arc, although massively rushed. Because the problem is for about, mm, I'd say, four-fifths. Eh, let's rewind that a little bit. Let's say for three-fourths of the film, Tempest is the villain. Then, way towards the end, at about the four-fifths thing, she actually has a, a character arc begin, and then it terminates within a few minutes of it beginning. So, you know, that's that's neat and all. I'll get more into that later. Though. Tempest shows up, outskills them all, because there's all this magitech they have, all this artifacts and uh, designed technology specifically built to contrast and defeat magic. We see this in the shields, we see this in the orbs, we see this in the design of the uh, the cage that they get Twilight in. There are several examples of this. It's actually one of the better examples of exposition, because at no point does someone stop and turn to the camera and say, Did you know this stuff is anti-magic? Instead, the film just shows it. Quality there, so that's good. Little things like that help buoy this film up, because otherwise this, this would be a lot worse of a film. <clears throat> We also see, by the way, that the crystal they're imprisoned in looks a whole lot like Sombra's crystal. And we know that that specifically referenced dark magic, a.k.a. curse magic. I actually find myself wondering if that's a deliberate reference or not. You know, utilizing curse magic to do this kind of thing. Given the Storm King's overall approach of conquering a territory and then claiming its resources and then moving on, basically a marauder king, I can kind of see that. Uh, we're not going to talk about the Storm King yet, though, because he has one brief cameo early on to establish him, and then we won't see him until the one hour and 13 minute mark. No, the villain of the film is Tempest, let's just be honest. But I'm going to move on here. <clears throat> so, they barely managed to escape. This is when I have to say that Michael Pena as Grubber is actually kind of awesome. Oh yeah, Liv Schreiber, or Leaf Schreiber? I actually don't know how to pronounce it. Plays the Storm King, and he does okay, but the role doesn't really work for me. I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll come back to him, I'll come back to him. This is when the pacing of the film really starts to hurt it, too. There's a lot of scenes that just drag just a little bit too long, and it's most of them, which means there's just this weird sort of pause every time you try to establish a new character beat and the story tries to move forward. It's just really awkward and weird to explain. 
Meanwhile, we find out that Tempest is only loyal because of selfish reasons, because she wants to restore her horn. But that's important to note, because that means Tempest is not actually loyal. In the same way that a mercenary is not actually loyal. You pay the mercenary, they work for you. Someone who's actually loyal is someone who is loyal to you. They don't, they don't need to be bribed in order to continue to work and serve you, right? So just interesting contrast there. Meanwhile, we see Beyond Equestria, one of the better parts of the film. We see some of the other lands and how they are uh, horrible. There's also a smart bit of exposition really early on. Someone mentions that they'll, they'll pay two storm bucks for Rarity's hair. Did you catch that? It's the earliest sign that this place is someplace that's been stomped by the Storm King already. You'll notice he has no real presence here. No guards, no oppression, no airship hovering overhead, no Star Destroyer in the distance. This is, again, back to that whole marauder concept. He, make, he came in, he took, and then he left. He established a bunch of rules in his absence. Okay. He established a bunch of rules in his absence. But ultimately, all of those rules are things that people follow out of fear because of the fact that he might come back, or there's something like that, as opposed to actually being enforced. You'll also notice that this whole place is portrayed as a sky of hum and villainy. A sky of hum and villainy? <laughs> wow! A hive of scum and villainy. And that also makes sense. Why? Because all the resources were taken and then he left. I hate to keep hammering that marauder point, but it keeps informing the narrative. These places have been stripped dry. It's probably one of the reasons why the Badlands area looks as terrible as it does. Because most of the natural resources were all consumed or taken off and then moved on. And now they have to make do with substantially less to sustain their existing populace. Now, if you have an army of several tens of thousands of people storm through and they take all the food necessary to support them and then they leave... Well, you got a problem, don't you? And this was a huge problem in real life history for many, for many, many, many years, in addition to many, many different areas. So all this lines up pretty neatly, which is just so weird because the plot elements and the setting elements are actually really good in this movie. The setting building, for example, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the Moss Eisley thing they got going on here. Uh, they also try to escape instead of just standing around and being an idiot. But there's another interesting tidbit. Uh, Rarity just decides to help the dude out, and they're just nice to, uh, I didn't even write down his name, did I? The cat guy. Yeah, I didn't write down his name. The cat guy. They're actually pretty nice to him. And simply by virtue of being nice, that makes him consider his position. Now, he was willing to sell them out, but when it comes down to it, he actually lies directly to an agent of the Storm King on their behalf. Huh. I point that out because I just I want you to think about that for a minute, okay? Moving on, we then see Zoe Zaldana. Finally, I wish she had a bigger role in this film because <laughs> she's awesome. And we find so they're like, oh, we gotta throw him over the edge. But wait, wait, break for food. And and Rainbow's like, why are we breaking for food? And they, she flat says, well, because we only get the one break for food per day. Ooh, yeah, that's uh, that's neat. You'll notice no one's enforcing this. There's a book. But that's it. They, they follow it because of fear. And if someone were to come by and inspect them at random, they would be in trouble. And you get the idea that that's a thing that happens, that there's probably like one or two airships that just kind of roam a territory and check on it, just, just to make sure, just to maintain just enough atmosphere of fear to make sure that they all do as they're so told. Just uh, another little wonderful thing of horribleness there. Naturally, they, you know, 
are nice to them. Can I just mention, by the way, I love... I, I thought about writing down every instance, but it just kept happening. Applejack, just she's so awesome at this point. She does this in Season 4 as well, this thing where she just looks at the camera and raises an eyebrow or rolls her eyes. I don't know what to call that. She, she's kind of the, the person the camera pans to to be like, really? She does that a lot, and, and she does that a lot in this film, and it's awesome. But anyway, so then Rainbow decides, you know, the best possible thing is to set up a sonic rain boom. That's a great idea. Why don't we set off a giant signal flare to tell everyone where we are? <laughs> hey, funnily enough, that's exactly what happens. Huh. So then they escape, barely, and barely manage to get to the point where they actually, you know, get the heck out of there, and they find the hidden place of the hippogriffs. No relation to the, the other one. <laughs> And we find out that the hippogriffs turned themselves into seahorses. Okay, real quick. The seahorses idea, that's actually kind of neat. I kind of hope those show up in Season 8 and Season 9. Because that's that's awesome, and I can't believe they haven't done that till now. I know they just did it to make toys, but as I've said many, many times, if you're going to make a thing to make toys, at least make it a good thing. You know, just, just make it a work of quality. That's That's all I ask, guys, really. Anyway, so they're turned into seahorses, and there's this whole thing. And poor Spike, he's just a little <clears throat> pufferfish. Why does she have so many shells down here? Anyways, there's like... You'll notice I'm just skipping over most of the songs. Only one of the songs was interesting enough for me to comment on it. We're not actually there yet. But there are uh, eight songs that I recorded, into the, not counting all of the credits songs. I wasn't really counting those. A lot of music. A lot of music in this one. You've got to let the music in you, apparently. Which I didn't, except for the one. Twilight tries to steal the pearl. Counter, counter continuity counter? Counter continuity counter. This is aggravating. This is the this is the culmination of how much I don't like the the character element of this film. Character ca character assassination? I don't even know what to call this. Twilight. Twilight, after season seven, is the one who decides to betray and use her friends and in, in use, uh, use, abuse the uh, friendship and trust of the people who have taken them in as guests in order to try and get the magic artifact to save the land. Twilight. Really. Like, I could believe that back in season one or two, maybe three, but even by the time this was actually being designed, which is after four, this is still total nonsense. I, I don't have any defense of this. I know she's got anxiety issues, if you could call it that. I know she's, and we've debated that on the stream of nations. I know that she has uh, burden problems. I know that she's really worried about everything. I know that she feels they got completely curb-stomped and they need to use every disposal at their ability, blah, 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 blah. But this is stupid! <sighs> See, what happens here is I feel like there's an, an undercurrent theme. And it's the obvious theme. It's the theme that, that literally smashes you in the face half the film. Do you choose your tools or do you choose your friends? I mean, there's literally a scene where she has to choose between going for the staff and going for her friend. Interestingly enough, going for the friend was actually the wrong call there. It's just in so doing, things happen to work out. But let's not get into that. The problem is, if you want a theme to run undercurrent in your work, you have to work to make it go through the fictional work and naturally be a part of the film's overall approach. We've actually talked about this many times, and we'll talk about this later in this year, many times, because there's a lot of films this year which have an undercurrent theme, which is woven through the narrative. In this case, however, it feels like every now and again someone's like, oh yeah, theme, 
And like the narrative stops for the characters to just stop and do something effectively that doesn't make sense or doesn't line up with reason or reality and then go back to the movie proper. It's strange. What's even stranger is that the theme is actually well presented in the background. Hear me out for a second. I talk many I have talked many times about what I call the pattern in My Little Pony. On the off chance you haven't seen that, well, actually, you know what? No, if you're watching this, you've probably watched my streamination. So let's just fast forward a little bit, shall we? Let's assume you know what I mean when I say the pattern. But the most important part of the pattern, and I have to say this because some people still get this wrong, is it's not like there's, it's not the force, right? There's no sentient or will or concept or anything like that. It's more like a pattern in the sense that um, how far you can drive your car is a pattern. Let me try and explain that a little bit. If you have a gallon, a 10-gallon tank, and you can get 10 miles to the gallon because you have a terrible piece of crap car, then you can go 100 miles, right? Like, that's the distance you can go. That's the pattern. There's no force field 100 miles from there. There's no sentient entity defending it. There's no external energy trying to infuse your limit to it. It's just how it is. It is the nature of of how that reality works, the nature of simply having fuel, reducing fuel, and thus hitting your limit. That's the pattern. The pattern of friendship, the pattern of connections between people, the pattern of how harmony actually functions and works. Now, why is this all relevant? Because in this film, everywhere they go outside of Acrestria, where the, the pattern has not really had a chance to distribute, for lack of a better way to put it, we see the characters, the main six, interacting with people and naturally causing the consequences of the pattern and those they interact with. We see this at every single step. Spike even makes fun of it, for God's sake. Is that it? And also made friends with? Because that is how that functions. Simply by being who they are and allowing those natural connections to grow, the pattern starts to spread in very minor ways, but it's there. And thus, in so doing we see that idea of friendship and the value of cooperation, coordination, and, and, and interaction. The very concepts of what they call harmony in this show. Anyways, Twilight's an idiot and decides to steal the pearl. And by the way, this is a good time to mention another thing that irritates the crap out of me. Twilight doesn't teleport at all in this film. And she barely uses telekinesis. For God's sakes, towards the end of the film, when... The Storm King and Tempest are, are plummeting to their deaths, and obviously someone holds St Tempest to prevent her, which, by the way, that's a good example of the theme. You know, the two people falling to the death, the only one who's saved is the one who has friends. Pattern. Anyways. She doesn't use her telekinesis. She uses the damn staff. Did they forget that she can do telekinesis? There's, there's several scenes where she's like, ah, I need to reach out and get something like the pearl or the staff, and she doesn't use the... Just grab it. God's sakes, you don't even have fingers. Just use your frickin' horn. I'm sorry. It's just aggravating. Tempest is basically Starlight Glimmer. <laughs> uh, she has her song. This is the song, the only song I actually liked in the whole film. Um, her song was pretty good, and it does get across the ideas of her mentality and why she functions and thinks the way she is. She, like many other people we have seen throughout the course of this series, doesn't have a lot of self-confidence in herself. 
So as soon as something, self-confidence is probably the wrong word, but basically her desire for things like friendship, interactions with others, is smashed in half the moment anything goes wrong. In other words, to put it into my own terminology for a couple other films I covered earlier this year, she doesn't have much of a core. And so because of that flimsy armor and flimsy HP, she breaks. She determines, well, screw it, I don't need friends. My friends abandoned me, and then they turned against me, so fine. I don't need friends. <sighs> so she decides to work for the Storm King, because he says, hey, yeah, I'll totally repair that thing. That's totally something that I can do. And based on the way the film's presented, it's actually pretty clear that that is not a thing that can be done. Jason makes me wonder, why can't they repair her horn? I mean, they have the staff. Anyways, whatever. Tempest is very controlled, very competent, very efficient. She's always on top of things. She's always glowering. She's always serious. This is all important because this is why the Storm King is the exact opposite of all that. He's an incompetent boob who has no idea what he's doing. He constantly rant, jumps around like an idiot and talks all about his branding, which actually makes sense because his name's not the Storm King, nor indeed do we know what it is or will ever find out. That's not important, really, because he's just trying to play up the, the mystique of it, right? And you're probably thinking, what the hell? Why would you do that? Hear me out for a second. Imagine for a moment that you are a pirate and you want to go rob someone. Now, you can board their ship kill their people and lose some of your own people and take losses and take damage to your ship, which might be fatal damage to your ship and also damage their ship and possibly lose the cargo if the ship accidentally sinks and just a thousand things that can go wrong. Or you could have the Jolly Roger up there and sneak right up on them and be like, aha, it's us. And maybe like kill one person as an example or maybe just have a reputation being a particularly well-known pirate, like, say, the Dread Pirate Roberts, for example. All of the sudden, the people are like, oh, God, here, here, take our stuff, please, spare our lives. Well, okay. And now you've gotten all of that booty with none of the actual detriment. That is the power of branding right there. I'm not actually joking. He is presented in exactly the same manner. He calls himself the Storm King, and he's got this big black, you know, metal thing. He's got the smog airships. And he, he's got this whole brand going so that people fear him without actually having a particularly good reason to, since he's just an idiot who barely knows what he's doing. He relies on devices and inventions to make up for the difference, but even those are probably coming from someone who is not himself. Oh, yeah, he also only shows up in one. Oh, I, I got a comment on this. There's this great scene. It's really minor, but as they're walking by the princesses, I think it's actually specifically Celestia, in, encased in crystal, you hear just distant and echoing this, ah, just this horrible screaming wail in the background. It's beautiful. Anyways, so yeah, he's a moron, total opposite of her. And my favorite part is he didn't know the power he was stealing, and he most especially does not know how to use it. So he just plays with it like a kid. This is, of course, when he betrays Tempest. Oh, color me shocked. And this is when it's time to win. As I will complain about later this year, one of the things I dislike about certain... <sighs> aimed at kids fiction, for lack of a better way to put it, is the good guys lose because it's time for them to lose, and then the bad guys lose because it's time for them to lose. At several points in this story, I find myself thinking, why aren't they fighting back? 
Like, there's several scenes where they run away from two guys. Or maybe three, if you count the, the little dude and, and uh, Tempest. That's so like four people total, and they just run in terror from them. Rather than using any of their talents or skills or abilities to fight back, like they more than can do and have been able to do since season one. However, now that it's time for them to win, they do all those things I've been waiting for them, for them to do the entire film. All of that complaining out of the way, I actually kind of like the fight scene. I do. It's a decent fight scene, it's decently choreographed, but also all of them do play to their strengths. And I have to point out two of those. First of all, Pinkie Pie. Double surprise! And the second one I have to point out is Fluttershy. That was actually really adorable. You look kind of stressed. Do you want to talk about it? <laughs> that that was good. So, the choice. Do we take the staff? Or do we take her? Y you know, you, you can get both. You have telekinesis. I, I know, I've already talked about the telekinesis. So obviously she goes. She saves Tempest. And then her friends come up and save her. Notice she immediately apologizes for the argument earlier. For actually yelling at Pinky. They probably... See, I was thinking about this and why they would choose Pinky to be the one that she bursts at. It probably would have been even more impacting if it had been Fluttershy. Because that's clearly the point of that scene, to have the shock value of it. But I suppose that might have been seen as too severe. Either way, she immediately apologizes, because obviously it's been her, her mind this whole time and how much she's been bothered by this. And then we have the big, you know, conclusion, and we, oh my god, we get the thing, and we need, oh, I need my friends to reach the staff. The Storm King doesn't need anybody to reach the staff, rah, rah, rah. Obvious symbolism is obvious, and also stupid, for reasons I've already eliminate, uh, eliminated on. Which then, of course, leads me to the storm stopping, which makes perfect sense. Twilight, unlike the Storm King, actually knows how to use magic. Then the Storm King comes up to hit them with another obsidian thing and Tempest stops it. And then the Storm King falls to his death and clatters into a bunch of pieces, unless you count the credit sequence as legit, which I absolutely do not. He's dead. Hmm. So, you know, they, they fix Tempest, they fix everything, everyone's happy, there's a big party, there's a lot more cameos, a couple of songs happen, and... We find out Tempest's real name, which is actually what the film ends on, the end. Yet, yeah, not all that impressed. There's still some good elements here. It's not a blue episode, but I think... What do you guys think? Do you think this deserves green or yellow? I'm kind of torn between the two. And honestly, I actually imagine I'm going to get a lot of people who disagree with me on that in principle. They're going to say, no, it's much better. If you don't know what I'm talking about with the colors, well, then don't worry about it. I'm thinking I'm leaning towards green, if I'm being completely honest. Because while the setting building stuff was good, it was, and there are some legitimately good moments, percentage-wise, that's in the minority. And the character stuff is in the majority, and the character stuff is what really got to me. Yeah, I think I'm going to give this one a green. Although, we'll see if any of you disagree. I will be watching the comments, as I always do. So if any of you disagree with me on this, please feel free to share. I will probably still have the spreadsheet a year from now when this video goes live. I hope you've enjoyed, guys. Uh, I'm not actually sure what's next week. I don't have my calendar in front of me, but hopefully I will see you guys next week. Or, excuse me, two weeks. Two weeks from now. <laughs>